Our catechism instruction this evening comes from question 55. And it's written there for you in the, on the outline. You can see question 55 under the text there. What do you understand by the communion of saints? So in the Apostles' Creed, we're in the last section there. And we've spoken about the Holy Spirit. And last week about the Holy Catholic Church. And now the Creed is setting before us this article, the communion of of saints. And the question given us in our catechism is, what do you understand by the communion of saints? Two answers are given. First, that believers, one and all, as members of Christ the Lord, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. Now, this line, this article of our creed, my friends, may seem a bit unnecessary because we just had the article previous, the Holy Catholic Church. And of course, uh, bound up in that term church is this idea of a gathering. That is, that is, uh, that is what the word church means, a gathering, in the, in the uh, language of the New Testament as well. It means a gathering of people. So why then would the, would the creed have the need to repeat this idea, the communion of saints? Well, uh, that might be a, a, a fine criticism to make. Again, this is, this is a creed. However, uh, I think I see in this, in this article, my friends, not just the general article of the Holy Catholic Church, which is a very broad article. I think we saw that last week, remember? That every line of that answer had a truth to it. But now the communion of the saints is focusing on a very specific aspect of the life of the church. The communion that saints have, first of all, vertically with their Lord Jesus Christ, with our Savior, our Lord, but also horizontally with each other. In effect, uh, there's a cause and effect relationship between those two, isn't there? That the, our vertical relationship is what makes possible this horizontal relationship that we have with each other. So the communion of saints is carrying on, certainly, the idea already given to us in the Holy Catholic Church, but it's narrowing its focus considerably. Now, this particular article is one, another one of those articles that was added to the creed later. The original Roman creed, as it was called, did not have this line. This line was put in later, and if you read the history books on this subject, nobody's really sure where or how it happened. But here it is in the providence of God, the communion of saints. Furthermore, as you might expect with, with the uncertainty of where it came from and, and, and how it got into the creed in the first place, is some disagreement about what it actually means. Uh, the communion of saints, some people have seen a reference here to the actual communion as we celebrated it this morning. To the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and having that kind of communion of the saints. Some people have, have thought that Perhaps that's what, that's what it is referring to. Now, that's unlikely. Although, we certainly can say that the communion that we have around the Lord's Supper is an aspect of, the, of communion that saints have with each other. But probably this article is, is somewhat broader in its meaning. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, this article has been expanded far beyond where Scripture allows us to go. In the Roman Catholic Church, they teach that not only is there a communion of saints living on earth, but that there is an actual communion of saints who are already departed. The saints who have gone before. Uh, I hope our children know this term, right? The church militant. Remember that term from your Sunday school or catechism instruction? The church militant, the church fighting, the church, the fighting church, right? Which refers to the church on earth, which is fighting the enemy of Satan and their own self, sin and the world, right? Is engaged in that warfare. But there's also the church triumphant, which is the church in heaven. They've finished the battle. They've won the battle. They've been given the victory, a crown of victory. And now they are in glory with God, waiting to come back uh, to this earth at the last day. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, they also will talk about the church suffering. The church suffering, which is the church in purgatory. But again, in this church, because the Bible says nothing about purgatory, we don't accept that doctrine of purgatory. So we scratch that one out. And that's why the children here have learned those two, the church militant and the church triumphant. 
Well, now, the Roman Catholics go on to say that if there is a communion of saints, and since the saints are one body, which actually we're going to talk about this evening, then there can be a communion between the saints that are on earth and the saints that are in glory. Which is why they will encourage the, the, the Roman Catholic uh, priests and bishops and, and teachers in the Roman Catholic Church, encourage their people to pray to the saints. Now, the, the Roman Catholic theologians make some very sharp distinctions here that you pray, you pray to the saints for their prayer. That you're not praying to the saints in the sense that you think saint so-and-so can do any good for you. The only good he can do for you is to direct his prayers to God on your behalf. No different than when I might ask somebody, would you pray for me this week? Well, the Roman Catholics would expand that and say, since there is communion of the saints, that we may also ask the departed saints in glory to pray for us. Now, I guess that's a fine distinction, right, to make. Certainly, you wouldn't want to say you pray to a saint for their whatever they could do for you in heaven. And yet, we often find, don't we, that these fine distinctions in theology don't translate very well into the practice of the saints themselves. And what ends up happening in so much Roman Catholic practice is that they end up praying to the saint as if the saint himself is going to do something for them. And all the talk of the theologians that say, no, 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 you're praying to the saints for their prayers. You're not praying to the saints as if they can save you in some way. Those distinctions are lost, aren't they? And what ends up happening is something that is just dreadful and that people begin to pray to saints instead of to our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, other abuses also begin to leak into the system, right? And pretty soon people begin to think, and this has happened in Roman Catholic practice, that one saint who was especially holy, especially a saint that was highly respected, it's much more effective to direct your prayer to him than to just any other saint who's just a common saint. Well, again, you, you see where this is going, don't you? How, how a, a practice gets started uh, built around something that is certainly true, right? I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment, the, the, the uh, communion of saints, and then going far beyond what Scripture allows us to say. And, and pretty soon prayer is being directed to saints, and, and if it, you can direct your prayers to this saint, he's going to be especially, you know, God is especially going to listen to his prayers. And then the idea that, People would have their own special saint, right? Because a loved one who died and left and went to glory, now they continue to direct their prayers to him or to her, whatever it may be. And you could see how there is a devolution here, right? It begins to grow worse and worse. And so as Protestants, we reject the idea that people should pray to saints. You should pray to the Lord Jesus Christ and to God Almighty and him only. Nevertheless, there is this, this article of the creed that has given us the communion of saints. And I want to look at that, especially in light of this text that is given us here in Hebrews 12. So let's turn then to Hebrews chapter 12. Now I want to start in Hebrews chapter 10. And I put these references on the outline for you so you can kind of see where I'm going here. But in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32, we have this section uh, beginning. And let me uh, introduce this, uh, these, these series of texts here with this comment. You know, and you know very well by now, right, that the, the letter of Hebrews was written to Christians who came from a Jewish background. These are Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians have this temptation, uh, this draw upon them to return to the Jewish religion, to leave Christ behind and to go back to Judaism. And the author of this letter wrote this letter to persuade them to stay true to Christ. Don't return to your old religion. Stay true to the religion of Jesus Christ. The Jewish religion is a false religion. The true religion is the religion that centers around Jesus Christ. Now, there were various pressures being placed on these Jewish Christians to go back to Judaism. But one of them was the afflictions and the persecutions that they were uh, receiving from the people that were around them, and the trials and the sufferings to which they were subjected. Remember when we were in the book of Acts, right? That when Saul started that persecution, 
in Jerusalem, and the people fled in all directions. You'll remember that James took up his pen and wrote a letter to those persecuted Christians. Well, in a somewhat similar way, the author of Hebrews is writing to these Jewish Christians, urging them to stay true to Christ. And one of the, one of the issues that the author has to face is the, 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 the trials, the suffering that these Jewish Christians had to face. So with that in mind, turn with me to Hebrews 10 and verse 32. So Hebrews 10 and verse 32, where we read, But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Now again, it, it, it's not clear what exactly he's referring to, but he may be referring to those sufferings that they, that they endured when, when, right after the day of Pentecost, when Saul's persecution began. Verse 33, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. My friends, one of the, one of the sharpest criticisms that a Christian can take is just being ridiculed. That is hard to take, isn't it? It's one thing if a person comes to us and wants to dispute with us about a point of doctrine, or is the Bible really true, or is there really a God? But, the, but, the, but to face ridicule, and, and reproach like that is very difficult to take. Verse 34, you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Now look at that, the seizure of your property. That means that there were people who took the property of the Christians. That when the Christians, by persecution or whatever hardship, had to leave, had to flee, became refugees, that other people swooped in and seized their property. And here the author recognizes that. And he says, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Now we get the impression from the letter of James that there were some who did not accept it so joyfully. But at any rate, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. And then here, the whole, the whole message of Hebrews in verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, that is your confidence in Christ, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, again, there you, you hear that, that, that common theme in Hebrews, right? The idea of shrinking back, going back to their old Jewish religion. But if he shrinks back, but we are not of, uh, but, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So there, my friends, you have the hardships that these Jewish Christians had to endure, even to the point of having their property stolen from under them. That would be a difficult trial to face. But now the author of Hebrews is going to comfort. He's going to give encouragement to these suffering saints. And how does he comfort these saints? How does he comfort them? What method will he choose? Well, the author of Hebrews is going to show these saints that they are not alone. That there is a whole company of Christian people who feared God, who trusted in Christ, and who faced hardships of every kind. And that there is a vast number of these people stretching back into biblical history and stretching forward. So now we turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And you know Hebrews chapter 11. This is a well-known chapter to us, isn't it? This is what we call sometimes the, the, the hall of faith. All these people that are listed for us here. By faith, verse 4, Abel. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch. And it continues. Verse 7, by faith, Noah. So you have the, these, these saints listed about, uh, and the faith that they had and the endurance that they, that they did. One after the other. Abraham. Abraham gets a lot of space in Hebrews 11. But this is the community. This is the this is the group of which you are a part. Yes, you're suffering hardship. But look at, look at the people in the past. You're following in the footsteps of all these great saints of the past. 
Now be encouraged by that. They suffered too, terrible hardships. So this is the method then that the author gives them to reassure them and to comfort them and to encourage them to stay true to Christ. But now we come to Hebrews 12, and the author here continues. The author continues in verses 1 through 4. He sets before them the example of Jesus. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Verse 3, consider him. So he sets before them the example of Jesus. Not just Enoch and Noah and Abraham and all the rest, but even our Savior himself endured so much hardship. Then in verse 5 through 11, the author of Hebrews shows that the sufferings that they were receiving were exactly what you would expect to receive from a loving father. No, it's not joyful. It's not pleasant, right? He even says that. Right? He says that uh, uh, in verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. And yet we know that this is what fathers do to the children they love. And if our father didn't discipline us in this way, then it would be because we're not his children. Right? I don't discipline. As a father, I don't discipline children that aren't my own. If you saw me disciplining my child, you would be justified in concluding, oh, that must be his son. And in the same way, the author says, the discipline, the sufferings, the trials that we're going through are God's fatherly discipline of us, and we should see them in that light. And then verse 12 to 17, the author gives, again, various practical exhortations, pursue peace, strengthen the, the weak. And verses 18 to 24, then, is our text. This is kind of the capstone. Because in these verses, verses 18 to 24, you have the author in verse 18 saying, For you have not come. Now there's the first. You have not come to this. And then he changes, verse 22, But you have come. And now let's look at that. Have come to what? Well, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, to a blazing fire, the darkness and gloom and whirlwind. What mountain is this? This is Mount Sinai, right? This is Israel before Mount Sinai. Remember the trumpet blast and the fire and the, and the awful spectacle that they saw there of the sovereignty and the majesty, the power of God. But the author says, that's not who you've come to. Verse 19, to the blast of a trumpet, the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. Remember, they asked Moses, Moses, you go up and talk to God. Verse 20, for they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses, even Moses himself, Moses, the holy man of God, said, I am full of fear and trembling. Now the author says, that's not the mountain that we've come to. That's not where we've come. By the way, again, you can, you can just see this in the argument of the, of the letter, right? Because what did the Jewish people do? The Jewish people were at Mount Sinai. The Jewish people worshipped the law that God gave them at Mount Sinai. And they followed that law to the T. And they had confidence that their obedience to that law would be their righteousness before God. They were the ones sitting at the feet of that mountain. But our author here in the letter of Hebrews says that's not who we've come to. We've come to something quite different. And then this, this beautiful, these beautiful verses. But you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels. Again, thousands upon tens of thousands of angels. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Now, this, uh, the church of the firstborn, that means everybody in this church is a firstborn. Remember, the firstborn had the right to the uh, inheritance. And everybody in this church, says the author, is a firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, the, the spirits of the righteous made perfect means even the, the souls that have departed, even the church triumphant. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. 
not Mount Sinai with all its terror and with all its fear. But you, says the author, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to this mass assembly of people and angels, all celebrating the glory and the majesty of God. My friends, you are to see in those verses the, 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 this massive worship service. Thousands upon tens of thousands of people. People on earth, people in heaven, angels, all gathered in this worship service like none other ever has been or ever will be. This is the greatest celebration of God and the worship of his name. God is there. He's the judge of all. Jesus is there, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks, which preaches better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel called for vengeance. But the blood of Jesus calls for reconciliation. It calls for forgiveness. It calls for atonement. It is atonement. And because it's atonement, it brings forgiveness of sin. Now the author says, <clears throat> this is the community to which we have come. See this suffering Jewish Christians. You haven't come to Mount Sinai with all its terrors. You've come to this glorious service of worship, the most glorious that ever can be imagined. And you are a participant in it. If you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and if you've come to God through him, then you are a member of this grand, colossal community. Saints in heaven, saints on earth, even the angels, they're, they're, they're worshiping and praising God as never before. Now, with that thought in mind, the author encourages the Jewish Christians. And I put as my second point on there, the Elijah syndrome. The Elijah syndrome, my friends, very, very simply, I'm the only one left. Remember Elijah? when he faced the hardships in, the, in Israel. And remember, he fled out into the wilderness after the, after the uh, you remember what happened on Mount Carmel, right, where the, the worshipers of Baal were all killed. He, in a, in a, for, uh, his, his faith faltered and he fled out into the wilderness. He says, Lord, I'm the only one left. There's not a single other worshiper of you in this whole nation. That's the Elijah syndrome. And I think many, perhaps in the, in the time when the author of Hebrews is writing this, had that syndrome. And now the author comes to encourage them. He says, on the contrary, you are a member of the largest, greatest community that has ever existed. And he tries to paint that picture. He tries to paint that picture. Look at it. He wants you to see it. Look at the angels. Look at the people of God. Look at the saints, both the ones in glory and the ones on earth. They're all there. They're all gathered as this massive community of people. They're all joined to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. They're all together. And you're a part of that. And he encourages them with those words. Now, my friends, to go back then to what I had said previously about the Roman Catholics, the Roman Catholics start with a true idea. So many errors start this way, don't they? There is a truth in Scripture that there is a communion of saints, both the saints in glory and the saints on earth. It is one body, and there is a communion of saints, the spirits of the just made perfect, and the church militant on earth fighting. There is this common, there is one body of Christ, those in heaven and those on earth. But there the Bible stops, with one exception that I found. You remember what, what Jesus said, that there is joy in heaven, over one sinner who repents. That's the only thing I, I found in the scripture that would indicate that there's any kind of interaction, or at least what that interaction, that there is a communion, is clear in, in this text. But that's the only actual specific example I found in scripture, that there is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. Now, in some way, those in heaven know when a sinner on earth repents, and they rejoice in that fact. But the scripture stops there and gives us no other details about how the departed saints in glory have communion with the saints on earth. So what do we as a Protestant church do? We stop as well. Yes, there is this communion of saints. And yes, it includes all the saints in glory and the saints on earth, the spirits of the just made perfect, as well as the church militant here on earth, as the text clearly teaches us. But we know nothing about what specific 
forms that communion takes. And so we do not pray to saints. And we do not pray to anyone else, but to God alone. And the mystery of what the saints in heaven know about what's happening here on earth, we leave there. Because God has not chosen to reveal it to us. But we do not do, as so many do in our day, and that is start spinning things out of our own mind and out of our own authority. Those things are valueless. They are of no value for the Christian church because they're not based on the word of God. And so we reject those things. We throw them aside as the traditions of men that are of no value and that are not based on scripture. But my friends, this then is the, is the, the beautiful truth that is given us in this scripture, that there is this glorious communion that takes place, this massive community of people that are rejoicing and praising God as one body, both in heaven and on earth. That brings me to my first point of application, and that is belonging. My friends, every human person has this longing to belong. We want to belong to something. It's, being a, it's belonging to a group that gives us meaning, that gives our life purpose and meaning in this life. And so there is this longing, and may I say it, especially amongst the young people this evening, that you have this earnest desire to be committed to something, to be committed to some group. That's why you have so many, uh, you, you see so much of this on college campuses, right? There's all these different groups, and people are trying to find meaning and purpose in their life by, by fighting climate change, by saving the whales, right? And, and uh, they join this group or that group. Many of these groups have very good uh, 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 purpose, uh, groups to fight abortion, right to life groups. Other, others will get involved in political candidates uh, and, and try to uh, get out the vote for a, for a certain candidate. But I think you, you see there that psychologically, humans have that sense of need to belong to something. Now, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? What community can you possibly belong to? Dear people, what community could you possibly belong to that can even approach the church of Jesus Christ? I want you to go back and read those words again. I mean, I read them so quickly. But read those words again. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the myriads of angels, this general assembly, in other words, this massive assembly and church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. And imagine in your mind's eye, my friends, what it must be to belong to such a group. I would say to myself, how can I get enrolled in that group? How do I find out? How can I find out? How can I get a place amongst that happy number of people? And especially to the young people this evening. If you belong to another group, more power to you. But if you're not a member of this group, you are missing the best. You are missing the best. To be a participant in this communion of saints, my friends, is something that is far beyond our comprehension. And I suspect that when we leave this world and enter into the next, some of this mystery will be unfolded to us of just what it means to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ. You know, for me, it always comes back to when we recite the Apostles' Creed in this church. Now, this may sound a little strange, but sometimes I just, I want to close my eyes. And I want to hear the saints all through the ages of the centuries past of church history saying that creed. The same words, my friends, that we profess today. I believe in God the Father. I think of my father. I think of his grandfather. I think of Edwards and, 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 and Whitefield. I think of the Hodges. I think of Calvin and Luther. I think of all the Puritan theologians. I think of all the theologians back farther, farther, the church fathers. I think of Augustine. I think of Chrysostom. All repeating these words with us. And their voices echo down the centuries. This massive community of people professing faith in God, faith in Christ. And I am a member of that community. Now that is an amazing fact. 
But there is a poison, my friends. There's a poison that will bring corruption. We read about that in Hebrews chapters 12. As, as wonderful, as, as, as tremendous as it is to reflect on that glorious community, the author of Hebrews gives us this caution. Read with me verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, now pay attention to that, no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. I hear, my friends, in that text, my second point of application. And that is that there is a threat to that unity. There is a threat to this communion. Now, the saints in glory don't have to worry about this anymore. But the saints on earth, and that's why we're called a church militant, a church fighting, because there is a root of poison that can come up and wreck that unity. Now, it becomes us then to think, how can, we, how can we stomp that weed out, that root of poison? How can we find it? How can we root it out before it does all its damage? The Catechism has set before us this beautiful picture as well of the communion of saints. Each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of other members. But now we want to know about this root of bitterness. And my friends, as your pastor this evening, I want to focus on a specific thing. It would be easy for me just to throw that out there. Watch out for the poisonous root. But I hope you'll be man enough tonight to focus with me on a specific thing. That is a poisonous root in this church. I know it's always much nicer when the pastor rips on other churches. But tonight, follow me for a specific poisonous root that I think is lurking and growing in this church. Something that we need to be mindful of a weed that we want to find and stomp it out before it wrecks the communion that this church enjoys and the unity that we enjoy together. Now, here it is. I want to speak this evening, my friends, about the, the speed at which we become offended about things and the speed, the, the quickness with which we are outraged at other members of the body. I find that it is something and I, of course, I include myself in this, my friends, that there is this spirit amongst us. Thankfully, it's not overwhelming, but it's there. And that's what we expect of a poisonous root, right? A poisonous root is not a full plant, but there is a root there. And I find amongst us, my friends, a, a quickness to become offended and outraged, to become angry about something, about some perceived slight or insult or, or something that we perceive that, that, that we, we, for whatever reason, we find irritating and angering. There's a trigger there that maybe is just a, too, a little too quick. This is the what under my application too, what. Now, I, I want to say, my friends, first of all, I'm not, I'm not uh, you know I'm not singling anybody out here, right? Of course, I wouldn't have brought it here if I had an issue with a spe specific person that spoke with him directly or her. But this is something congregation-wide that I think as a pastor, I can say this is a poisonous root that can destroy the unity of this body. Why? Why, my friends, think about that with me for a minute. Why is there this poisonous root? And why are we sometimes so quick to become offended at something that happened or something that someone said and we quickly become irritated? Is it not, my friends, because we are a proud people? We are a proud people. Pride is not a virtue. Pride is not a virtue, my friends. But we are a proud, proud people. And you know what else we are? We're very spoiled people in the sense that we don't have any of the hardships that these people had in here. We don't have those kinds of hardships in our life. You might say we've got time and the luxury of quarreling and of, of getting offended and of taking offense at things that we, we shouldn't take offense at. And this is a poisonous root that I think we need to be on guard against. But this poisonous root has its own root. Or maybe I could put it this way. This poisonous root grows in the soil of pride. And we are a proud people. We are a wealthy people. We're a very prosperous and successful people. And that gives, that gives soil then for this poisonous root to take root amongst us. 
And this is something that we need to be on guard against because this will wreck our communion. And then this church right here can't be a picture of that glorious community that is described in our text today, both in our text and in the catechism that we have set before us. Where did we learn this, my friends? Where did we learn this, 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 this quickness to be offended at something, at a perceived insult? I think I know where we learned it, my friends. We learned it in the world. This is a manifestation of worldliness in this church. Because when we look out in our society today, we see, we live in an age of outrage. Everybody is outraged at things. In fact, in fact, we are even told that if you're not outraged at something, there's something wrong with you. The virtuous person in the world at large today, my friend, is that person who's angry, who's outraged. He's offended. He's deeply offended. And this is the kind of person that is held up for us as an example. My friends, is it possible that something of that spirit has, has leaked into this church, has, has found its way amongst our members, so that we too now think that we have some kind of righteous anger when we, when we are offended or, or have this insult done to us? There's even that uh, expression today. I've seen this expression. Silence is violence. My friends, these things ought not so to be. This is not the way of, of the gospel. This is not the way that God would have us to live. This kind of anger, as I put on the outline there, does not bring about the righteousness of God. And I want to give these three principles then in closing. How we can find this weed and stomp it out. Pull it out by the roots. The first thing, my friends, because not all offense is wrong, right? Not all anger is wrong. My first principle is this. When you feel offended by something, my friends, the first thing to think about is, am, is the source of this offense something that was done to me personally? Am I offended because someone or something happened to me personally, to my own self. Now, if you see an injustice done to someone else and you feel a sense of outrage, I think that is generally going to be righteous anger. I mean, it could go to an extreme, yes, of course, right? We need to be careful about that. But generally, I have confidence that that would be a justified offense. But my friends, when you're taking offense at something done to you personally, now you need to be on your double guard. Because now Satan has you in a position that is so precarious. Because we all want to defend ourselves. right? We all want to vindicate ourselves. We are a proud people. And we want to stand on our reputation. We don't want to be seen as wrong. Now even there, it's not always wrong to be offended when something is done to you personally. But I'll say it almost always is. I might even go so far as to say 99% of the time, taking offense as something done to you personally is probably not advancing the kingdom of God at all. When you feel offense done to you personally, something done to you personally, my friends, that's the time to let a day or two or three or a week go by before you act on it. Nine times out of ten, my friends, when you act quickly because of some perceived insult done to yourself, you are going to sin. And that's why I say Satan has you in a place where he can really work. When we feel personally aggrieved, when we feel personally offended. The second principle that I set before you, my friends, is we need as a church... If we're going to stomp out this weed, if we're going to pull it up by the roots, we need to study the virtue of meekness. Meekness. M-E-E-K. Meekness. This is not even a word that's used much in our vocabulary anymore. Most of the translations of the Bible have substituted something else like gentleness. But meekness, my friends, meekness is a virtue that we need to learn from God himself. And meekness is that virtue that God gives his people which enables us to, that when we feel those flare-ups of anger, it enables us to moderate it, to, 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 to 
round off those sharp corners. This is a virtue that God gives to his people. We see that in our text this evening in Hebrews chapter 12. You can see that in verse 11, where the author is talking about uh, the, the discipline that God our Father gives us. It yields the very, fast, the very last words of verse 11. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is the work of God, that he brings this, this peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's, it's something that brings peace. It works peace. Why? Because by being meek, God enables us to do the thing that will bring peace. You'll see also in verse 14, verse 14, Hebrews 12 and verse 14, pursue peace with all men. This, my friends, needs to be something that, again, intentionally, we make a goal of our Christian life. That in whatever work we have to do in this church, we do it aiming for peace. My friends, ask yourself, when you have something to say, when you have a point to make, will it lead to peace? Now, again, I always need to say this. There are some times you need to speak, even when it won't bring peace. It might bring a terrible uproar. But let's hope that those are the exceptions, my friends. And that in the general life of our church, we can speak and act in such a way that we aim at peace. That's not me talking, right? It's our text. God says to you this evening, pursue peace. Me as a pastor, I need to pursue peace. You need to pursue peace. The elders, the deacons, we all should pursue peace. And we, and we can do that, my friends, by bringing back this concept of meekness. Blessed are the meek, the old King James Version said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the, the earth. I'd like you to turn with me again. I'd like you to see this with your own eyes in First Peter. In First Peter. In First Peter chapter 2. This is on page 1212. 1212. Page 1212 in your Bibles. First Peter 2, where we read about our Lord Jesus Christ. And while being reviled, 1 Peter 2 and verse 23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. My friends, this is the example of our Lord and Savior, the one that we call Lord. He was reviled. He didn't revile again. He was insulted. That's what it means to revile children. To revile someone is to insult them. But he didn't give it back. How contrary to our culture. Our culture today teaches us that if you don't give it back, you're a weak person. My friends, the exact opposite is true. My strongest moments is when I can have an insult and I can bury it. Usually I'm too weak, right? And I want to give it back. That's weakness. My friends, the strongest person amongst us is the person that has that kind of meekness. The meekness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who when he was reviled, he did not revile again. My third principle, the way we can pull out this root of bitterness and not be so quickly offended. By the way, I could just as well have talked about giving offense, right? That's certainly a principle too. I, I wanted to focus on this one, taking offense. But of course, there's many ways you could go with this. But I wanted to focus on this one, taking offense. In my, in my third principle, my friends, I take you back to the first application. I take you back to that community, my friends, that glorious worship service that's taking place that we have become by faith in Christ members of. And I take you back, my friends, to that table that was spread before us this morning, which was a, a symbol, a sign, a representation of our membership in the body of Christ. I ask you, my friends, as those who profess that Jesus is Lord, to come back to that table, to see the broken body there, to see the shed blood of the innocent Christ for a guilty people. I take you back to this table, my friends, and I take myself back to this table to see the hell that you deserved, to see the hell that Christ in his grace and mercy plucked you out of when you didn't deserve it. 
You weren't even asking for it, my friends. But God in his sovereign grace plucked us out of hell, which was justly deserved. And by the broken body and the shed blood of his own beloved son. My friends, if as Christians we can stand before that cross... Some of these other things begin to melt into insignificance, don't they? And it's our failure, my friends, as Christians, to stand before the cross of Christ that leads us to be so quick to anger, so quick to take offense at things. You know, if I can tell you this story, I, I smile when I remember this. When I was at the seminary working, somebody said, did something that made me livid. I know you might find that hard to believe, but I was angry. And I came into to, to work the next day. The, the proverbial, I was loaded for bear. Okay, I was, I was gonna talk to the boss and I was, and my friends, as clear as, as I've ever had it in my life, the Lord spoke these words to me. With what measure you measure, it will be measured to you again. And I'll never forget the arrow of conviction that struck me at that moment. That the measure, the yardstick I used to measure that person's behavior who made me so angry, if that yardstick was now turned to measure my behavior, where would I be? And I went through the doors of that building the next day a very different person than I left the day previous. That's why, my friends, so many of these issues of sanctification just kind of resolve themselves when we stand before a bleeding Savior, when we stand before the cross of Christ. My friends, that's where we were this morning. That's where we were this morning. We all were there. We ate that body. We drank that wine. Now, my friends, let's live out of that power. There's power in the blood. Let's live out of that power. And let's come together as a communion of saints and let our unity be a testimony to the watching world that the service of Christ is the best and the happiest service. Congregation, may God enable us so to do to his glory. Let us pray. Oh God, we come before you as a broken people this evening, confessing, Lord, our sin of pride, and that this root of bitterness, we've given place to it for too long. But Lord, I pray that you would help us this evening to recognize first the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in giving himself as a sacrifice for sinful people. But also the example that he set for us, that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. Lord, help us to learn meekness at the foot of the cross and help us to be busy with the work of the church to go about doing good, using our gifts to enrich our fellow members. And the slights and the insults that we receive, Lord, help us to bury them, to cover them over in love. Lord, bring us back again and again to the cross of Christ, to learn there this glorious truth, that Jesus is Lord, also in this church, also over our interactions with each other, and help us to walk worthy of the calling that you've given us. Lord, please bless us then and convict us of these things and give us a holy resolve to put this weed to death, to pluck it up by the roots and to cast it far from us. And may that poison never be given a place to spread in this church, in this body. Lord, bless us and keep us and remember us in your mercy. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in the red hymnal now to 87A. 87A. Zion founded on the mountains. God, your builder, loves you well. Glorious things of you are spoken. He delights in you to dwell. Let's sing the three verses of number 87A in the red hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.